Hi, welcome to JP Morgan TV. I'm Tom Salopek from Cross Asset Strategy. Today, we're joined by the team that produced the Alternative Investments Outlook and Strategy document. Nikolaus Panagirtsoglu is leading the effort on, on alternatives. Let's hear from Nikos first. Nikos, we're at the point where we're at the end of the business cycle, possibly. People are rethinking their allocations. And at the same time, there's the question of the public and uh, private valuation gap. Why don't you share with us your findings? Uh, thank you, Thomas. 2022 was obviously a, a big correction year for public markets, but uh, private markets showed more resilience. Uh, on our estimates, the AUM of uh, pr uh, alternatives, what we call alternatives, is uh, the universe of uh, private equity, private debt. Hedge funds, uh, private real estate, digital assets went down by only 2% from uh, $27.2 trillion to $26.6 trillion versus a 15% decline for public assets. So that is a, has been a function of two factors. The first one was the resilience fundraising. Uh, the fundraising overall uh, for these alternative asset classes uh, was pretty robust. Uh, given what happened to public markets, we had around uh, 1.2 trillion dollars uh, of overall fundraising in these five asset classes, uh, which is very similar to what we saw in 2019 uh, before before the pandemic. It's lower, of course, than 2021, which was 1.4 trillion dollars, but still 1.4 uh, 1.2 is a pretty strong number, and that helps uh, the AUM. Uh, if you want to contain the decline in the AUM for these alternative asset classes. The second reason is the valuation lags that are natural, common in uh, the private asset space, in particular in private equity and uh, private real estate. Uh, and these valuation lags meant that by the end of Q3, uh, when we have the uh, last uh, reporting data, there was a big gap between public and uh, private markets. So that, at the time, uh, was uh, a very important headwind that we had highlighted as a reason to be cautious on private assets in particular. Since then, though, public markets, since the end of September, public markets have rallied a lot. So that valuation gap has narrowed significantly uh, by simply like public markets uh, rallying strongly uh, since uh, last uh, September. As a result, uh, we are less cautious on alternative assets. We still expect that alternative assets uh, will uh, produce a lower return of public um, markets uh, this year, but, uh, but not as much as before back in, in, in September. In terms of our recommendations, uh, and I will let uh, the rest of the team to focus on the individual uh, asset classes. Uh, we uh, downgraded digital assets. Uh, for digital assets, the outlook uh, looks more uncertain given the FTX collapse. For us, uh, the most important metric there is VC funding. Uh, VC funding has dried up. Uh, we would like that VC funding to rise towards like one to two billion dollars per month uh, before we 
uh, uh, feel more comfortable about digital assets. So we downgrade digital assets and we upgrade private debt. Uh, the, the reason for private debt upgrading is the, the fact that the new loans that are currently be, uh, originated in private debt markets are the yield of almost 200, uh, the yield spread of almost 200 basis points relative to the public market pricing and uh, that combined with signs of like falling inflation and peaking in interest rates we you know makes us more comfortable with the private debt uh, asset class and and finally i close uh, with the other asset class that we keep an overweight which is hedge funds with a focus there on discretionary market so i finish here and hand over to nelson Sure. So for private credit, you know, 2022, it was really a story of some year-over-year moderation and activity. And of course, we saw a pretty steady pricing in new origination. Uh, but I would characterize it as, as pretty resilient, you know, versus the collapse that we saw in uh, new origination in, in public markets. Uh, so new capital committed uh, to private credit during the course of 2022, uh, 200 billion. That was down about 7% from 2021's uh, record year. However, that sort of masked uh, the decline that we did see on a quarter over quarter basis. So, you know, 4Q produced about 24 billion of volume, you know, down from 40 billion in 2Q and 3Q. Um, but looking at our, our, our credit financing business, that has insight into about 60% of private, uh, private credit transactions. For context, we saw about a 10% uh, decline in activity in the second half. In public syndicated markets, uh, we saw a 60% decline. And then one of my favorite observations here, our financing business, we still provided support for 33 different LBO transactions during the course of fourth quarter. We syndicated only one LBO related syndicated uh, loan during the quarter. The one thing we did observe, you know, as we, as we, as we moved forward through the course of the year uh, was uh, transition towards more conservative uh, transactions. You know, leverage came down uh, close to five times uh, from six times earlier in the year. There was a shift to more add-ons versus new business transactions. And then most importantly, the market repriced pretty steadily uh, to a level which I would characterize as attractive versus public markets. Um, you know, after, for most of the year, trading on top. Um, so for example, you know, we pegged the median transaction in the private credit space in the fourth quarter at, at SOFR plus 675 with a OID of 97. That's essentially a yield of 12%. That was about 200 wide of the loan index at year end. And that 200 basis points, that's now back in line uh, with the historic average. It was basically trading on top of public markets for the course of the first three quarters of the year. And then of course, in January, we've seen public markets rip. Uh, so our loan index yields down another 75 basis points. So this likely suggests, you know, one, I think the repricing wider in private markets is likely done for now. And second, you know, the demand picture for the private credit space should remain supported in 2023 by the double digit yields one can now get, as long as this soft landing narrative that we're seeing uh, continues to hold. Just in terms of the size of the private credit space, we're now at 1.4 trillion. So that's about a quarter of the leveraged credit space. Um, the way I think about that is we have about a trillion of, of syndicated bonds and loans coming due in 25 and 26. A lot of this is geared towards smaller issuers um, that, that came about uh, during the leverage loans uh, market's rapid growth over the, over the past decade. You know, for context, there's now 1,150 different loan-only issuers that only tap the loan market, and that was 407 years ago. 
So we had a leveraged loan market that was growing 10% per annum on, a, on an ongoing basis over the past decade. I don't think that's likely going forward. So I do think that the private credit space is going to play an important role in the leveraged credit space going forward. With that, I'll pass it on to Mika. Uh, thanks, Nelson. So for private equity, I mean, the headwinds that we uh, saw that building during uh, the course of 2022, in the tightening of central bank policy uh, and higher yields, as well as sell-off in, in public equities, really started to weigh on activity in the second half of the year. Um, the overall pace of exits uh, in both the US and Europe um, have, uh, halved, uh, have slowed to their lows during the euro area sovereign crisis. Uh, and similarly, the fundraising uh, in Europe halved uh, to levels that were last seen kind of in dollar terms in 2011. Um, and while in the US you still, still, still saw relatively robust fundraising, you started seeing signs of, of um, lengthening times to raise new funds and to um, and um, uh, kind of some um, uh, scaling back of the fundraising targets. That said, I mean, the headwinds uh, from the denominator effect uh, that Nick Cost discussed earlier in terms of the valuation gap uh, between uh, public and private uh, markets, um, that while that intensified through 2022, uh, that hasn't started narrowing uh, more recently as, as public markets have been recovering. Um, and um, a likely decline in secondary market discounts should also see P investors that are still overweight uh, a bit more willing to uh, reduce holdings by secondary sales, and that should uh, represent an opportunity for secondary funds. Um, and that means that while the backdrop for PE uh, remains challenging in our mind, um, and the discounts in secondary markets above normal, um, the narrowing of that previous valuation gap uh, does imply less underperformance versus publicly listed equities uh, than we saw previously. And, and that means that the outlook uh, is a bit more favorable for 2023 uh, as it was in terms of sectors, I mean, beneficiaries should be uh, should include sectors like business to business, uh, focused on manufacturing as well as materials. Given given a greater emphasis on reshoring, um, as well as energy, uh, including clean energy. Given given um, kind of a greater emphasis on energy security as well as uh, decarbonisation. With that, um, I'll hand over to Federico about real estate. Thank you, Mika. Turning to real estate, we think that. The outlook for the asset classes deteriorated in 2022. To effectively move from a Goldilocks scenario of above average growth, uh, loose monetary policy, and high inflation to a scenario where monetary policy is restricted, growth is much more mixed and closer to neutral, and inflation is high but is clearly slowing. We think, in particular, that the most, from a macro perspective, the most important variable that we should monitor is that there is increasing evidence that inflation is downshifting and we're moving towards the end of the hiking cycle. In turns, this likely means that nominal real yields have peaked and we start feeling rapid. In our view, this evolving macro picture is enough to change our recommendation in public real estate. We started 2022 with an underweight in REITs that we actually trimmed uh, mid-year, but we carried it over. And we now think it's time to close these residual underweights versus other equity sectors. However, we think that it's quite an attractive right now, the tactical entry point to make um, to, to move to underweight, to move to overweight. So we're reluctant to make the shift. Looking at private funds, we think that headwind remains. In particular, we think that this will have to contend with the so-called denominator effects that was discussed earlier by my colleagues, as well as by expenses valuation. In contrast, REITs, that is public real estates, um, for, for REITs and public real estates, valuations are much more in line with fundamentals, and in particular, cap rates for REITs are in line with our fair value model. 
um, within the sector. So we prefer REITs, we prefer pub public funds as opposed to private funds, both open-end and closed-end funds. And for sectors, I would, you know, we think that our sectoral preferences have become a little bit more balanced compared to last year. However, we still maintain a bias for industrial versus offices. In the rest of the note, we look at, uh, we review the performance, effectively, you know, the recent performance for public funds. We think that so we, we can see that returns have rebounded, uh, re rebounded quite vigorously for public funds. However, uh, data for private funds only extend generally to the third quarter of last year and generally still slowing and, and the pattern is still of returns peaking and slowing down. And we think this trend is likely to continue because the valuation differential between the two um, parts of the real estate market remains. Finally, we also look at uh, fundamental uh, indicators. So we, we consider a range of indicators that we monitor and we think that the picture there is that uh, the market is still cooling, so the asset class is still cooling. Thank you so much. Um, I'll move it now to Nishan, who is going to talk about hedge fund. Thanks, Federico. The hedge fund industry showed resilience to last year's sell-off in public markets, with average hedge fund losing just about 4% during 2022, compared to a 20% correction in equities and 16% correction in bond market which helped hedge fund produce an alpha of 10.2% over a wall-weighted bond equity portfolio benchmark, which is biggest since 2003 or the global financial crisis of 2008. Despite strong alpha generation, the hedge fund industry lost 55 billions in flows. It's the biggest outflow since 2016. Within hedge fund categories, there are two categories which showed striking performance last year, multi-strategy hedge funds and macro hedge funds. Multi-strategy funds produced a strong alpha for second consecutive years and was the only category to show inflows in 2022. Macro hedge fund massively outperformed last year, mainly due to systematic strategies such as CTAs, which benefited from riding last year's downtrend in equities, credit, bond, and uptrend in dollar in the first half of 2022. In the second half, however, as the macro policy environment started changing, discretionary macro were quicker to adjust their portfolio, helping them outperform their trend-following counterparts. To conclude, for this year, we continue to favor discretionary macro hedge funds, as we believe that discretionary managers will be faster to adjust to rapidly changing macro and policy over the coming years, compared to more quant-based trend-following strategies. Uh, with this, I will hand, hand it over back to Tom. Well, thank you all for joining us. The Alternatives Report has been very well received. Any questions, please reach out and thank you all for tuning in to JP Morgan TV.